Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture and execution. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On January 1st, 63 BCE, Marcus Tullius Cicero was elected as one of two consuls, Rome's two most powerful leaders. They presided over the Roman Senate, approved laws, and commanded the army during national crises. It was a huge accomplishment for anyone, but especially Cicero. He didn't come from an established society family. His city was conquered by the Romans hundreds of years before. As a result, he was considered an outsider. But over the years, Cicero established himself as Rome's best lawyer. This gave him the support to enter politics, where he earned a reputation as a fair and efficient leader. From there, he achieved the consulship. There was hardly time to rest on his laurels, though. Being consul in 63 BCE meant dealing with Rome's intense social unrest. The lower class believed the wealthy were taking advantage of them. Cicero suspected that they, along with a handful of double-crossing senators, were plotting something devious, but he had no idea what. This was probably on his mind when he went to bed one night in October 63 BCE. Just a few hours later, a servant woke Cicero. It was a matter of life and death. Cicero got out of bed and greeted his guests. Led by Crassus, Rome's richest man, they told Cicero he was right about the plot and should call an emergency session of the Senate. They needed to discuss what to do with the traitors. Cicero was grateful they believed him, but they needed more evidence. To which Crassus handed him a pile of letters. Cicero read one, then another, and another. They all said the same thing. Some of the senators were planning an uprising, but it was far more brutal than Cicero had imagined. The letters revealed their plan to gruesomely butcher their political opponents before taking control of the government. And Cicero was their number one target. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our fourth and final episode of Failed Conspiracies, a series where we blow open the oh-shoots and what-ifs of history's biggest blunders. Today, we'll uncover a plot hatched by a Roman official named Catiline. He wanted to assassinate his fellow politicians seize power for himself. In this episode, we'll take a look at the rising political careers of Catiline and his arch-enemy, Cicero. 
We'll discuss how this led to their inevitable showdown in the Roman Senate and the citywide battle that ensued. And since our whole episode is one big conspiracy, we'll end on something a little different. We'll dive into an alternate world where Catiline's plot actually succeeded. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Rome was founded in 753 BCE and quickly dominated the Italian peninsula. In its early history, the city was ruled by a monarchy. It flourished under the reign of at least six benevolent kings for 200 years. However, the seventh, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, was a tyrant that the Romans eventually overthrew. The king's power was spread out among annually elected magistrates, and the Roman Republic was born in 509 BCE. In this new republic, adult male Roman citizens were allowed to vote on bills, laws, and other policies. There was also a Senate, but unlike our U.S. senators today, theirs weren't elected. They were appointed by two leaders known as consuls and later by other elected officials known as censors. The consuls held the most powerful positions in all of Rome. They handled both domestic issues and international affairs, but a consul could only serve for a year. Then the Senate nominated more candidates and the people of Rome voted on who'd be seated next. As the Republic conquered new territory, the Senate grew to 300 members. They were split into two political parties. The Optimates represented those in favor of an oligarchy, and the Populares represented the voices of the people. Both groups came together to meet in the Curia Hostilia, similar to the U.S. Capitol today. From there, politicians made their speeches and proposed bills. 400 years after its founding, Rome had ballooned into a city of approximately one million people. It was the capital of an imperial republic that would eventually cover territory in present-day Italy, Spain, France, Syria, and Africa. Maintaining this growing republic was difficult. The Roman legions were constantly at war with other nations. However victorious they were abroad, the fighting put a massive strain on the republic's economy, especially lower-class farmers. 
most of them couldn't sell their harvest, mainly because of the importation of cheap goods from newly conquered provinces and the influx of slave labor. As a result, many of these farmers fell into debt. In order to repay those debts, the wealthy repossessed their lands. While the poor lost everything, the rich got richer, causing a strain between the classes. It reached a boiling point in between 87 and 86 BCE. A general named Gaius Marius saw this imbalance and took action. Before rising through the ranks of the military, he'd been part of the lower aristocracy. He believed that the wealthy optimates were corrupt and needed to be replaced. To put the populares in power, he, along with his co-conspirator Lucius Cinna, used their army to invade the city of Rome. Since the rest of the military was dispatched to fight in other countries at the time, the capital fell easily. Marius and Cinna took over as consuls, and many members of the Optimate party were killed. They rushed to send for help from another general named Lucius Cornelius Sulla. But Sulla stayed fighting in Greece and even Asia for a while before returning to Rome with his armies. Meanwhile, Marius grew weak and died, leaving Cinna in charge of the Republic. Sulla finally went back to Italy in the spring of 83 BCE and crushed the Republic's surrounding forces. After a year, he recaptured Rome and executed thousands who were against him, especially those in support of the populares. But the bloodshed didn't end there. With both consuls and half the Senate gone, Sulla declared himself dictator of Rome. He kept the Senate in place, but it was largely for show. He filled it with wealthy optimates who supported him. Then, he authorized a hit list called a prescription. It was a register of populares, senators, nobles, and other citizens who'd fought for his opponents. Everyone on that list was labeled an enemy of the state, meaning anyone could hunt them down and arrest them. The captors received a reward, and the prisoners were put to death without trial or mercy. But Sulla's policies hurt more than just his political opponents. They also affected impoverished Roman farmers. He took away their land and gave it to his soldiers as a reward for their service. Not that the soldiers were pleased. If anything, they had little use for the land. They preferred a cash reward and ended up selling their land to rich magnates. That is, until a man named Lucius Sergius Catalina championed their cause, otherwise known as Catiline. Catiline came from an old aristocratic family. Although they had money, they were nondescript. Catiline, though, wanted history to remember him. His desire for greatness led him to join the military at 19 years old. As a Roman soldier, he helped put down a rebellion in Italy and served with distinction. When that ended, he entered politics and joined Sulla's army in their capture of Rome. But Catiline was always strategizing on how to get ahead. Many scholars believe he married a woman and had a child with her solely to advance his career. Her brother, Marius Marcus Gratidianus, was a high-level judge in Rome. He was also the nephew of Gaius Marius. 
But the political winds shifted when Sulla conquered Rome. Catiline feared that his connection to Gratidianus and Marius would now make him a political target. So he turned on his brother-in-law. Contemporary sources believe that Catiline went after Gratidianus in order to win the favor of a man named Quintus Lutatius Catullus, a political rival of his brother-in-law's who was consul in 78 BCE. He captured Gratidianus and forced him to march through the streets of Rome, whipping him as they went. Then he took him to a cemetery, mutilated Gratidianus, and decapitated him. Catiline then took his head and paraded it back through the streets before presenting it to Sulla as a sign of his devotion. Sulla's regime lasted for three years, until he retired from politics in 79 BCE. He died the following year. Afterward, the populares slowly started to return to the Senate. Rome eventually stabilized. While everyone's lives quieted down, Catiline's was disrupted. In 73 BCE, he was accused of a crime punishable by death, having sex with a Vestal Virgin, one of the six priestesses of the goddess Vesta. Fabia, the Vestal Virgin in question, had taken a vow of chastity, which held the punishment of death if broken. This often meant being buried alive. Catiline was also sentenced to death. Catiline was in serious trouble, but Catullus, the man whose favor Catiline had won earlier, came to his rescue. He was now a leader amongst the Optimates, and he wielded a lot of power. He helped exonerate both Catiline and Fabia. Somehow, the scandalous affair was soon forgotten by the Senate, Five years later, in 68 BCE, Catiline was made a judicial official. A year later, he became governor of North Africa. It was a lucrative position that gave him access to the ports along the Mediterranean. While Catiline enjoyed a cushy government job, back in Rome, another enterprising man made a name for himself, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Cicero came from a wealthy family who possibly made their fortune in textiles and farming. While he had money, the Romans still viewed Cicero as an outsider because his ancestors had come from Arpinum, a town in central Italy about 60 miles from Rome. Because of this, Cicero had an intense desire to prove himself as a valuable Roman citizen. He became a lawyer and took on as many cases as he could. He was so dedicated to his job that physicians told him he'd destroy his health if he didn't slow down. To save his career, Cicero then took a two-year sabbatical in 79 BCE. He visited law schools throughout Greece and Asia to strengthen his craft. When he returned, he held several political offices in Sicily and Rome. He gained a reputation for fairness, integrity, and modesty. The people of Sicily loved him. He was the first choice to prosecute a high-profile case in 70 BCE. Sicily's former governor, Gaius Verus, was on trial for extortion. He'd made a fortune looting Greek works of art. Cicero jumped at the chance to prosecute Verus. But even with all the evidence and public outcry, he knew it'd be a hard case to win. 
Cicero soon found that many of his key witnesses backed out or disappeared, likely due to Varus's reputation for brutally punishing those who tried to stop him. Plus, Varus had employed one of Rome's best lawyers at the time, a man named Quintus Hortensius Hortulus. Cicero's meticulous preparation paid off, though. Reportedly, his opening argument was so persuasive that Hortensius gave up his right to reply. He knew he couldn't win. He recommended Varus go into exile. Knowing his days were numbered, Varus fled the city. In one day of court, Cicero had beat Rome's best lawyer and taken down its most corrupt governor. With this accomplishment, Cicero had established himself as a force to be reckoned with. Coming up, Catiline and Cicero lock horns in the Roman Senate. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. Catiline and Cicero began their careers after Rome's civil war in 83 BCE. Cicero established himself as an upstanding lawyer and politician. Meanwhile, Catiline was appointed the prestigious role of governor in North Africa. In 65 BCE, 43-year-old Catiline returned to Rome. With his experience ruling vast territories, he felt like he was ready to become a consul. Remember, consul candidates could only be nominated by the Senate. Then, citizens voted on the two new consuls each year. The requirements for candidates were extensive. Not only did they need years of political experience, men had to meet the 43-year-old age minimum and pay for much of their own campaigns. Few people were that experienced and wealthy, so it was unlikely that more than five people ran at a time. Catiline was fully prepared for the undertaking. 
He was about to throw his hat into the ring when his political opponents put him on trial again, this time for extortion while governing in Africa. Without verifiable proof, though, Catiline managed to skirt punishment once more. But his time in court did take away from his campaigning. As a result, two other men became consul that year. So Catiline ran the following year in 64 BCE. One of his opponents was a man named Gaius Antonius Hybrida. The other was Cicero. At first, Cicero tried to be friendly with Catiline, During his extortion trial, Cicero offered to help, but Catiline declined his offer and a rivalry formed between the two. Instead, Catiline made a pact with Hybrida. They were determined to thwart Cicero's candidacy. With the battle lines drawn, the candidates set out to campaign, during which Catiline and Hybrida engaged in massive bribery to secure votes. This enraged Cicero. He decided to do something about it by giving a historical speech. He stood before the Senate and reminded them of Catiline's and Hybrida's corruption, but it seemed mostly targeted at Catiline. He detailed how he killed his brother-in-law, slept with a priestess of Vesta, and abused his power as governor of North Africa. This severe reminder to the Senate obliterated Catiline's chances. When the citizens voted, Cicero and Hybrida won the consul seats. Catiline wasn't ready to give up, though. He doubled down and prepared for the following year's election. But he knew he had to change his tactics, since nearly all of the optimates in the Senate had abandoned him after Cicero's speech, he turned his attention to the Populares party instead. Many farmers were still embittered at how they'd been treated during Sulla's reign. It had ruined their livelihoods and put many into deep debt. To win their favor, Catiline made them a promise. He told them if they supported his bid for consul, he'd introduce a bill called the Clean Slate. Everyone's debts would be canceled. Catiline said he'd introduce a prescription of the rich and divide their land up amongst the people. At this point, Catiline wasn't just campaigning for consul. He was proposing an all-out war on the rich. It was a radical move, but he'd say anything to win the consulship. Many populares politicians offered their votes to Catiline. Word spread throughout the city of Rome, and the commoners were elated. Ironically, one of the most supportive groups were the veterans who'd fought for Sulla during the Civil War. It might seem like a surprising departure, granted Sulla had been a champion of the rich, but in reality, many of Sulla's soldiers were unhappy by how their general had treated them after the war had ended. They weren't paid for their service, and they didn't know what to do with the land they were given. Most of the soldiers weren't farmers, so they weren't able to make a living off the property. As a result, many of them fell into debt. And to Catiline's surprise, there were plenty of rich nobles that backed him as well. After overspending on extravagant celebrations like feasts and shows, the idea of canceled debts was lucrative to them too. Cicero saw Catiline gaining more popularity and tried to slow his success. He accused Catiline of bribery. 
While the claim was true, Cicero pushed the envelope. He tried to get a law passed that banished those who committed the crime. It was enough to push Catiline over the edge. He decided more powerful action was needed to knock the consul off the board and stop Cicero's interference for good. In order to do so, Catiline gathered a few trusted supporters and hatched a plan. While citizens were placing their votes, Catiline's supporters would incite a riot. During the confusion, others would then kill Cicero and a few of his colleagues. Fortunately for Cicero, he was informed of the assassination plot the day before. He called an emergency meeting of the Senate and postponed the voting process. Additionally, he urged them to initiate a law called the Ultimate Decree of the Senate, which would label Catiline as an enemy of the state. Catiline could be executed without a trial. But the Senate wasn't prepared to initiate the decree without more proof. The voting thus proceeded as planned. Cicero, though, wouldn't be stopped either. He set about a new tactic to win the sympathy of the voters by sending out some of his followers into the city. They whispered rumors that Catiline was still going to kill Cicero sometime soon. On the day of the election, Cicero arrived at the polls wearing a, quote, broad and conspicuous breastplate. To the voters, it looked like Cicero was trying to protect himself from Catiline's attack. The stunt worked. Enough of Catiline's supporters cast their vote for other candidates. Catiline had now lost three elections in a row. He was angry and humiliated. Catiline turned to drastic measures to seize power. Shortly after the election, Catiline called another meeting with his key supporters and outlined a new plan. They would raise an army of those sympathetic to their cause, like Sola's veterans and angry commoners. Most of them lived in a province called Etruria. They'd invade Rome on October 27th. Then, the conspirators still inside the city would incite a riot and let Catiline's army in to kill Cicero and his followers. Since the real Roman military was fighting in other countries, they believed the city would fall easily. Immediately after this meeting, Catiline sent one of his key military commanders, a man named Gaius Manlius, to Etruria. It was time to rally Sulla's veterans to their cause. Everything was coming together, but Catiline still had to be wary of Cicero and what he might find out. Cicero's suspected a plot was unfolding. He just didn't know the details. Although, Cicero soon became privy to the plan, thanks to one woman close to Catiline's inner circle. This was Fulvia, the mistress of Quintus Curius, a trusted Catiline supporter. He joined Catiline after he himself was expelled from the Senate for having one too many affairs. After hearing rumblings of the plan, she convinced Curious to confide in her. She wanted to know all about Catiline's conspiracy to overthrow the city. Curious believed that once Catiline took back power, he'd regain his position and his wealth. But unbeknownst to Curious, she warned Cicero of the plot. She believed there were too many lives at stake to stand idly by. Cicero was grateful for the information, though he had to find a way to leverage it. 
He didn't believe the senators would take Fulvia's word for it. In the meantime, Cicero continued searching for more evidence of this conspiracy. And almost by fate, on October 20th, such proof finally arrived. That night, an unknown messenger left a packet of anonymous letters at the home of Crassus, Rome's wealthiest man. Crassus had financed some of Catiline's earlier campaigns, but had since withdrawn his support. The letters were addressed to Crassus and various other politicians. One specifically to Crassus warned him that Catiline was going to kill the senators against him and seize power on October 27th. Crassus was so startled that the same night he gathered some of the other optimates and went to Cicero's home. They didn't know who'd written the letters, but they were convinced it was rock-solid evidence. At last, Cicero had proof that Catiline was initiating a coup. He'd convene an emergency meeting that morning. The Senate was sure to declare Catiline an enemy of the state. The following day, on October 21st, Cicero and the other senators met in the Curia. The room was bustling with a nervous, fearful energy. Cicero passed out the letters that had been delivered to Crassus's doorstep. After the senators read them, they were convinced. They passed the ultimate decree and declared Catiline an enemy of the state. Legally, they were allowed to kill Catiline, but there was hesitancy to rush into anything. Instead, the senators ordered that he be taken into custody and placed under house arrest. They would wait and see if there really was an uprising before making their next move. To prove his innocence, Catiline insisted he stay in Cicero's house, but Cicero refused, believing Catiline was homicidal. In fact, everyone was so terrified of Catiline that hardly anyone let him stay at their home. Eventually, his fellow co-conspirator named Marcus Marcellus took him in. October 27th came and went without a battle. The calm surprised the Roman public, making them wonder if Catiline really was innocent. This shifted the narrative yet again as people started to believe that Cicero had made the entire matter up. Perhaps he forged the letters himself. But Cicero was vindicated when one of the senators received a report from Etruria. Catiline's commander, Manlius, had amassed an army of 20,000 soldiers. The coup was about to begin. Coming up, Catiline's play to kill Cicero. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. By 63 BCE, after failing to secure the consulship three times in a row, Catiline raised an army to kill the senators who opposed him. But Cicero discovered the plot and placed Catiline under house arrest. When the riots failed to happen on October 27th, the senators wondered if Cicero had just blamed Catiline, since they were political rivals. But Cicero was right. Catiline was still orchestrating his conspiracy behind the scenes. Catiline planned to flee house arrest and leave Rome. It wouldn't be hard, considering the house belonged to an accomplice and he wasn't being monitored. His co-conspirators would stay behind to start the uprising on December 19th. That would give Catiline enough time to meet up with his troops in Etruria and march back to Rome. Catiline even told the group that Cicero needed to die before the coup could begin. A nobleman named Gaius Cornelius and a senator called Lucius Varguntius volunteered to do the deed. In fact, they promised they'd kill Cicero before the sun came up. Cornelius and Varguntius planned to assassinate Cicero in his own home that night. But, a few hours before their arrival, Cicero had heard of their plans through Curius's mistress, Fulvia, who continued to spy for him. Cicero told his guards not to let Cornelius and Varguntius in. He then invited other optimates over to prove that Catiline had ordered an attack. As planned, Cornelius and Varguntius showed up in the early morning of November 7th. The sentries overpowered them and eventually drove them away. For Cicero and the other senators, this proved that Catiline and his co-conspirators were guilty of treason. But Cicero was confident to play the long game. Rather than call the Senate that day, he gave Catiline time to flee the city. Cicero believed his absence from the meeting would solidify his guilt once and for all. As planned, the senators gathered the following day instead, on November 8th. Cicero observed the crowd. With no sight of Catiline, he was confident the traitor had left Rome. But that wasn't the case. Just before the meeting convened, Catiline walked in and took his seat. He was greeted by uproar. Senators called him a traitor and an assassin. Catiline tried to defend himself, but was drowned out by their cries. Catiline promptly fled the gathering and returned to his house to reconsider his options. While the odds were seemingly not in his favor, his conspiracy had been blown and the senators were against him, Catiline decided to forge on. He still had his most loyal followers and an army of 20,000 men. That night, Catiline left Rome and made the march to Etruria, where he met up with Manlius. 
he'd put a man named Publius Cornelius Lentulus in charge of starting the riots in Rome before he left. Meanwhile, Cicero was aware that Catiline had fled and prepared the city's defenses. Knowing that Lentulus was the ringleader, Cicero worried more about an attack from within the city. The proof was in a letter he'd intercepted from Lentulus to his followers. On December 3rd, Cicero ordered Lentulus's arrest along with four other leaders. Some senators suggested the five rebels be stripped of their titles and imprisoned for life. Others said they should be put to death. Ultimately, the decision rested with Cicero. He opted for execution. Cicero escorted them to a tiny room, and they were executed one by one, brutally, by choking. When Cicero emerged from the grisly scene, the people of Rome cheered for him. He'd saved the city from rioting. With this internal threat defeated, Cicero could now focus on Catiline. He ordered Catiline's former ally, Hybrida, to pursue Catiline's whereabouts. When news of Cicero's victory reached Catiline's legions, more than 10,000 men dropped their weapons and fled. Most of them were impoverished farmers who wanted an easy victory. The only soldiers that remained were those hopelessly in debt or disgruntled veterans who needed Catiline's revolution to save them. The chase played out over days. In January of 62 BCE, Catiline tried to flee to the northern region of Gaul. As he crossed over a mountain pass, he saw more Roman legions waiting below. A man named Metellus Cheller had been fighting in that region. When he heard about Catiline, Metellus turned his troops around. They would wait for him to fight him. Catiline was caught between two armies. Faced with the choice of surrendering or fighting one of the generals, Catiline chose to fight hybrid as soldiers. He wanted to attack the forces that had come from Rome, perhaps as some symbolic revenge for the city that betrayed him. Catiline mustered his men on the plains below the mountains. He gave them one final encouragement to fight bravely, and then they charged. The battle was ruthless to the very end. Not one soldier in Catiline's army survived. Hyberda was victorious, and therefore Cicero had won. Their victory marked the end of a seven-month power struggle. Back in Rome, the people welcomed an end to the plotting, paranoia, and bloodshed. The mood in the city was an odd anomaly. Even though Catiline had died a traitor, some people admired the fact that he'd confronted his enemies head-on. In the end, Cicero reaped the glory. The Senate created a new honorific for him, hailing him as the father of the fatherland. Although this plot ended with Cicero as the victor, our world might look very different today had Catiline won instead. As we discussed, Cicero was a prolific lawyer. He wrote over 70 books, essays, and legal speeches. If the plan had succeeded and he'd been killed in 63 BCE, many of those works wouldn't have existed. Works that had a massive impact on global history. In 1345, an Italian scholar named Petrarch stumbled upon a collection of Cicero's personal letters. 
The majority of them had been written years after the Catiline Conspiracy. But when the Roman Empire fell and the Middle Ages began, they were stowed away and forgotten. Petrarch's discovery marked a watershed moment in European history. Until that point, science, medicine, math, and nearly everything else in the West was mostly based on biblical ideology. But Cicero's writing showed Petrarch a new way of thinking, one that prioritized human virtue rather than spirituality. To help other scholars break free of this doctrine, Petrarch helped develop a new school of thought known as humanism. It focused less on sacred texts and more on works from the classical era in subjects like grammar, history, and rhetoric. Intellectuals throughout Europe also adopted this mentality, shifting thinking away from the spiritual and towards the humanistic. It marked the dawn of a new age, the Renaissance. If Cicero was killed before he could write those letters, the Renaissance may have been delayed or never happened at all. It would have set human advancement back decades, and we might not have some of the inventions that came out of the Renaissance, like the printing press, microscopes, or perhaps even whiskey. If Catiline had succeeded, the effects would have rippled through Rome at the time, too. Cicero wouldn't be the only one whose career was cut short. Julius Caesar may have never impacted history either. Sixteen years after Catiline died in battle, Caesar took power for himself. During his quest for power, he conquered territory in Egypt, France, and Britain. To connect his empire, he made a vast network of roads. Experts believe they did more than improve trade. They also spread Christianity. Once Jesus died, his followers used the roads to spread his teachings. Without them, perhaps Christianity would have faded into obscurity. It's impossible to say what the world would look like without one of its largest religions. But we know for sure that the Crusades would have never taken place. These were a series of wars instigated by Christians against Muslims in order to recapture Jesus' homeland and limit Muslim expansion. The wars lasted for over 200 years and claimed millions of lives. If Catiline had survived, his political goals would have left a greater mark on history, too. Reforms like land redistribution and debt cancellation would have been one of the earliest forms of socialism. Roman socialism, if it provided food, medical care, and transportation to its people, may have had an unimaginable effect on the United States over 2,000 years later. America's founding fathers greatly admired Rome. They used the Republic as a model for how their new society should run. If they'd seen the Romans experiment with socialism, they might have done so as well. If the U.S. had been created as a socialist nation, it's even possible that the more dire events associated with unregulated free market capitalism may never have happened. There may have never been a Great Depression. Granted, every system has its merits and its drawbacks. Experts continue to debate socialism's pros and cons, especially in terms of government control over the economy. In the end, one thing scholars agree on is this. Catiline's story is a testament to what happens when people pursue power above all else. The aftershocks ripple beyond the present moment, potentially altering history 
in the centuries to come. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for a new episode. Among the many sources we used, we found Charles O'Dall's The Rise and Fall of the Catalinarian Conspiracy extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 